Welcome back to Streamageddon, the TV and streaming podcast that goes undercover at the intersection of business and art in the TV and streaming universe to help you, the ordinary Joe, the viewer, find out what exactly is going on in the streaming universe and uh, how did it get this way? Where did these reboots come from? I demand answers. And this week, we have two agents on the case to help you find those answers. They are the Mr. and Mrs. Smith of this podcast. Chris Barlow, myself, and yes, my Mr. Smith, Diane Nora. How you doing, sir? I'm great. I'm glad I got to be John. Oh, you can always be my John. I'm the Jane of this affair. And this week, we'll be talking about the John and Jane Smith of Amazon Prime Video's new series, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And you might uh, think, oh, that's familiar. I seem to remember a movie of that title. Yes, you do. But guess what? This show, despite sharing a name and some of a premise, is actually extremely different. I just am going to say it right up front. I am shocked by how different this show is from what I expected. Yes, and I think uh, that is an asset to it, but we'll get to that more later. Is it? You'll have to wait to find out. No spoilers this early, though if you're curious, we'll be spoiling the first two episodes of that show, and it is all available on Prime Video now, so join us later. It's okay if we spoil a mystery or two, because there's so much more to come, including the mysteries of the streaming universe. You know, I still have mystery on the mind. We did our cozy winter mysteries series uh, the last few weeks, and uh, there are some mysteries in the streaming universe left looming. Like, where does your purchased content go when a platform dies? We begin there with a bit of follow-up. And yes, it's bad news once again for people who purchase their streaming content through Sony digital storefronts. Uh, You might recall uh, a few months ago, we had a story that Sony emailed people who had purchased television content from Discovery, like whole seasons of uh, Ice Hall Truckers, House Hunters, Bodega Edition, all of those shows that you could buy on your PlayStation from the Discovery uh, brands were just being deleted from your account. Not just were they no longer available for sale, they were being erased from your purchase history with no compensation. And this was upsetting, but I think some people kind of snickered, perhaps, because it was, you know, uh, purging house hunters from your library. Okay. Well, Sony says, oh, no, no, you don't understand. This is just a thing we're going to keep doing. And this time, they're attacking people who I think are going to have more opinions. I'm talking, of course, about anime fans. Notoriously an opinionated bunch. Indeed. And uh, folks who aren't afraid to express those opinions on the internet. Not at all. And they have opinions uh, about the the demise of the beloved anime brand Funimation. And yes, I did laugh the first time I read the brand name Funimation. (laughs) Uh, Funimation, if you are somehow unaware, and if so, I'm so sorry, this is the first time you're hearing the word Funimation. You should just say it out loud while you still can. It feels fun to say it. And you won't be able to say it much longer, because Funimation was a uh, Sony streaming brand, and uh, Sony is ending it, is, is sunsetting it, because what they did is they acquired Crunchyroll, a more popular anime streaming platform, and they are migrating everyone from Funimation to the Crunchyroll universe. Uh, This will involve a price hike for a lot of Funimation subscribers, I am told, and 
it is the uh, end of people's purchased catalogs in Funimation. And this is where we get back to nothing you buy from a digital storefront is really yours, especially if Sony runs that storefront. Uh, These are purchases that were, you know, supposedly sold as you know, lifetime purchases of shows and movies, and they simply will not be migrated to Crunchyroll because Crunchyroll doesn't have that that same licensing. Sorry, didn't want to make new licenses. Bye. Uh, hold tight your DVDs and Blu-rays. Yeah, dig them out of the storage space. Go back to your parents' attic. It's time to start hoarding the physical media again. Unless, of course, you've gone all in on the streaming future like we have, in which case you might be more interested in our next news story that comes to us courtesy of my favorite black sheep of the streaming universe, Plex. Diane, are you a fan of Plex? I am a fan of Plex. I use my Plex often. (laughs) All the ways you are trying to just kind of make sure it's a Plex or Plex the plex the plex i get to the plex that's how my mom would say in the old days we we took the car to the plex now the plex comes to you at plexes is that's where i watch my movies well you can watch your movies on the plexes because plex is opening a movie rental storefront isn't that a coincidence and and if you know listener you are not familiar with plex um plex is either a uh, free streaming platform that offers a movie rental storefront now, or it is a completely gray market way for your college roommate to stream episodes of Succession to your apartment, even though neither of you are subscribed to the Max app. I love that second one. Don't we all? You know, Plex is such an interesting company to me because their primary use case is people having private media servers that could be, you know, all home movies. But also, uh, you know, the Plex software is designed to make it very easy to catalog, organize, and maintain a library of TV shows and movies. It's almost like they know that's what people want to do with it. And uh, Plex, you know, that business, they sell some premium subscriptions to people to help them run their servers better. Uh, But at the end of the day, that is a niche market in a gray area of copyright law, to to put it mildly. And so Plex loves to tell you that they have other uh, customer-facing products. They, They have products. So many products. For example, a movie rental storefront that will include over a thousand titles at launch, priced starting at $3.99 to rent, with the same terms you'd come to expect from like an Amazon rental, 30 days to watch it, uh, 48 hours to finish it once you start it. Wonderful. Fantastic. Um, That is not the most interesting Plex experience I had this week. Shocker, reading about movie rentals did not uh, set my world ablaze. But you know what did set my world ablaze? stumbling into another Plex product, specifically Plex channels. Because one thing I've noticed when I open my Plex app to watch home movies streamed to me from my friend's Plex server, and only home movies streamed to me from my friend's Plex server, is uh, Plex loves to tell me what's on now. There is like, what's on now? And I noticed one day recently that they said Monsieur Spade was on now. And you might know we recently reviewed Monsieur Spade, and I love Monsieur Spade. And I don't love paying for AMC Plus just to watch Monsieur Spade. So I thought, wait, wait, wait. Can I watch that on Plex legally now? 
And it turns out now meant today and at 11.20 p.m. And it was like 3 in the afternoon when they showed me this. So it didn't really mean now. But what I did learn is that there was an AMC-branded live channel on Plex that would be airing an episode of Monshore Spade specifically at 11.20 p.m. Eastern. And that there were so many more channels that were airing things I could watch right at that moment. Kind of like the old days where I just entered a program midway through it and then watched the rest of it. In fact, it worked really well for a show I love called Portlandia. And guess what? You can watch Portlandia reruns on the Portlandia channel that airs nothing but back-to-back reruns of Portlandia. It is my dream of what cable should have become. I love this. And just to clarify, this is all free, correct? Free. Free in the Plex app. Free, free, free. And of course, that means there's some ads. But you know what? That works for uh, Pluto TV, Freevee, mm-hmm. our beloved Freevee. Uh, it is a direct competitor to those services that has been just hanging out on your home screen, and you've just been scrolling past it as you go to your, again, college roommate's home movie server to watch uh, popular home movies like The Marvels. I think this is great. You know, uh, I think that these fast channels are the future. I think they are the future in a lot of ways. And uh, I was so inspired by this. I spent a whole afternoon flipping through the Plex channels, and it inspired me to make a new game. That's right, Diane. It's time to play a game I'm calling Plex or Not, where you have to guess, are these channels actual Plex channels, or did I just make them up? It's Plex or Not. Wow, Diane, did you see this one coming? A whole new game. I didn't, and I I don't know any Plex channels, so... Get excited. The art of the guess. You know there's a Portlandia channel and some kind of AMC channel that has Monster Spade on it. So I'm going to name some channels, and you just have to tell me, real Plex channel or fake Plex channel? Okay. Get excited. We're going to start uh, with Fox Weather Live. Gonna say that's a real channel. Correct, correct. Fox Weather Live. Lachlan Murdoch uh, making some money on streaming, and we never even knew it. Uh, Next up, The Carol Burnett Show. A whole channel of just Carol Burnett Show? These are just the titles of the channels. Uh, I'm gonna say no. Nope, there's one called The Carol Burnett Show. That's a whole channel on Plex. The Carol Burnett Show. Next up, The Bob Ross Channel. Oh, the painter? Yeah, the painter. Uh, yeah, sure, that could be a channel. Yeah, sure, why not? At least that one has channel in the name, the Bob Ross channel. Uh, here's a fun one. This, again, I'm just telling you a title. Funny or Die, Inc. Um, that's a channel. Yeah, it is. Why is the ink in it? I don't know. Funny or Die, Inc., where you can watch content from Funny or Die. Uh, I also, uh, give you this one. Hot Ones. Um... Hot, oh, Hot Ones, sure, yeah, Hot Ones is a channel. Yeah, the Hot Ones, where you can watch people eat spicy wings. The Hot Ones is a channel on Plex. Uh, I'll give you a couple others here. How about BBC Food? Yeah. Yeah, why are not? They all, are they all just Plex how about How about Alf? Just Alf. Alf? Alf. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. Yep, Alf is a Plex channel. Tiny House Nation. It must be. Yes, that's a Plex channel. Yahoo Finance. And Yeah. Yep. Yep, and uh, I'm going to give you one last one, the challenge round. Christmas Plus. Yeah. 
Yeah, of course. Who, who wouldn't want Christmas Plus? Subscribe today. I'm thinking about Christmas in February. You know it. All the time. All of those. Plex channels. Every single one. Every what a single game. one's a Plex <laughs> channel. Congratulations. And they can all be yours for the low, low price of $0 when you download Plex. Well, just watch some ads. Who doesn't love ads? People so upset about ads when I'm telling you the future is here and it's the past. There are probably people walking around really sad, not knowing where they can watch ALF. And there's a whole ALF channel. All the time. Non-stop ALF. I could not make up any channels for that game because there are so many Plex channels, I would have no way of knowing if I was actually making one up or actually just inventing one that really exists. What a treat. What a time to be alive. But you know what? It's not all good news in the world of streaming. And that brings us to our biggest story of the week, the most uh, ominous headline of them all. It comes courtesy of a man who actually coined the phrase peak TV, Mr. John Landgraf of FX. And he is here with some apocalyptic news. Peak TV is over again. He's predicted it a couple times before. This time, Peak TV is over, and he means it. He must have been listening to Streamageddon, because we have also predicted that TV <laughs> Peak TV has ended. Thanks for listening, John. We just wanted to shout out our favorite listener, John Landgraf. Anyway, moving on. No, of course. Uh, this is sad news. The idea that Peak TV has ended. And we have numbers. John has numbers to back this up. Because uh, 2023 saw a 14% decline in scripted television programming. Uh, which means that for this year, there were only uh, 516? Yes. Uh, streaming shows, cable, broadcast, and streaming made for adults fiction content. Right, and that's um, scripted shows. Correct. So not including reality. Don't know where uh, Freebie's, you know, jury duty falls on that scale, but let's assume it counts. I think I think it might count. I um, don't know where How To With John Wilson falls on the scale, but let's assume it counts. I would hope so. Uh, the last time the number was that low, in 2019 we were at 532, and 2018 we were at 496. So it's not like these numbers are unheard of in this era, but we can see that the numbers are trending downwards, which I mean, is a bad sign for consumers and a, a bad sign for creators and, and the whole economy that uh, relies on, on the television industry. So it, this is sad news. Yeah, and, and it's, I think, particularly sad that Landgraf uh, seems very confident that the number will go down again in 2024. He does mm -hmm. not think this is a blip. He acknowledges that the strikes may have made this number a little worse than it would have been. But he is, I think, convincingly confident that it's not just the strikes and that uh, even clear of the effects of the strikes, the number is going to continue to trend down. Uh, we talked last week about Disney retooling their Moana show into Moana 2, the sequel to Moana, secretly was just going to be a streaming show, and that is now minus one in the number of streaming originals for 2024. Right. Uh, I'm just curious as to where we're going to plateau here. What will about the average per year be? Will it be something in the 400s? Um, I hope we're not going to go any lower than that. It's a, a hard time for people working in this industry. 
Yeah, it is. And in comments related to this, uh, Landgraf, still in charge of FX, he's been there for 20 years now, uh, he openly says he doesn't think FX would still exist if not for Disney and Hulu. That fully he believes that streaming has saved that brand. And FX is an incredibly important brand uh, in in TV, in, not just in streaming or in cable, in TV. It is an uh, underappreciated brand that has gained a lot of attention from hits like The Bear on Hulu. Uh, another interesting comment he made was how the, the binge drop model of The Bear came to be. And it was because he didn't think, they didn't think, he didn't you know fully take this on himself, but they didn't think it was going to be successful. And the, the first season ends on a more positive note. So they thought, well, binge drop it. So there's some hope at the end. And maybe people will binge drop it, binge watch it, and then say, you know, have a positive feeling at least. And instead it was a hit. And he openly said, well, once we binge dropped one season, we felt like we could not reverse course on that. Which again, I thought was all interesting to see someone who made a very successful cable brand talk about how uh, they've had to pivot, not just, you know, tried to pivot or thought, oh, streaming's the future, but like must pivot and must quickly learn the expectations and play the game of streaming the way that the streaming game is played. You know, not everything's a binge drop on FX or Hulu, but when they decided something was, they quickly realized that show is now forevermore a binge drop show. I think that is a big part of the Bears um, DNA, and it would be weird if it lost that. Yeah, and they've also learned some lessons about what not to do. Uh, I think a lot about um, American Crime Story, the one of the more successful Ryan Murphy uh, spinoff products uh, that was an FX original, but uh, a couple of the seasons got tied up in Ryan Murphy's deal with Netflix that meant even though the episodes were airing on FX, they were held back from streaming as Netflix uh, exclusives uh, that would come out even later, so they couldn't help build buzz or momentum for the episodes as they aired on FX. And I think they learned how negative that can be if they, you know, again, to his point about uh, thinking FX probably would not exist without Disney and Hulu, I, mm. I think they've learned the hard way that if you don't control the streaming fate of your uh, studio, because FX is ultimately kind of a, an HBO-style studio inside of a bigger conglomerate now. If you don't control that, what are you? You're, you, you know, FX is the HBO of Disney. That is what FX is now. There's so much more at stake than just making a good show. Yeah. You know, I was like, think of like the big challenge is making the good content. But when you think about how every aspect of the release and the release to streaming affects audiences. It's, um, you know, complicated stuff. And John Landgraf is admitting failures when he is really someone who we think of as like the master at this. Yeah. And he's, you know, in a fortunate position in some ways because he's not the CEO of Disney. He, he mm -hmm. doesn't have to appease investors the same way that uh, David Zasloff has to, for example. But, but he is given a platform and a voice and a level of autonomy that we don't see in many other environments. You know, uh, we talk a lot about Casey Bloys and the team at HBO, but they're surprisingly quiet under the David Zaslav regime. Uh, they don't go out and talk about how HBO would be doomed without streaming. It is very uh, interesting that Disney lets John Landgraf be so frank in his comments and so transparent as a leader. And I think it's, you know, 
know, one of the reasons he's kind of a, an institution at this point, and it's one of the reasons FX has survived so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, FX has been on my mind lately. Uh, I am reminded a lot of an FX show in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the show that we are uh, reviewing this week. So I think all of this, as will come up shortly, speaks to... Uh, the quality of the work that they make, but also the savviness, the business savvy that John Landgraf has. And even though he has predicted the end of peak streaming twice before, this time, I I think he's right. I We've said it before, so we're going to just double down and say, yeah, John, thanks for listening. We agree. Next time, email us. You know, and we'll we'll announce it live on the show. Send us a voice memo. It could have been here, John. It could have been here. But we forgive you because you did make a show called The Americans that reminds me oh. a lot of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, our review this week here on uh, Streamageddon. There was no way for me not just to go straight to this thinking about... Uh, spies who are pretending to be married and then maybe they are really married because what is marriage but kind of a construct where we all pretend and that is the perfect transition to Mr. and Mrs. Smith a uh, fascinating reinvention of the early 2000s Brangelina rom-com action movie about a married couple who are spies And the original movie, if you don't recall the premise, hinged on the two of them not knowing that each other were spies. And and that is, of course, hilarious, charming, action-packed. The new one starts in a completely different place. And it is really interesting to see how they just took the, uh, the idea, the IP almost, and ran with it in a whole new direction. And the team involved is an interesting team. It was uh, created by Donald Glover. And Donald Glover stars as John Smith. And he's great. He's fantastic. I, if you know, you don't immediately recognize Donald Glover. Uh, he is from Community, but he is also from Atlanta and the co-creator of Atlanta. Uh, the the show has uh, so much DNA from some of his past projects in it. You can see that, but it also has all this DNA from the the movie it's inspired by. And I would argue the most DNA from FX's The Americans because that was a show premised on two deep cover spies pretending to be husband and wife in suburban America in the 80s. And when we meet them, they are years into their assignment. They are a married couple running a travel agency who just happened to be spies who were paired together and told, you are a married couple, go pretend now. And this show, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the pilot uh, of uh, two episodes we watched for the review. Uh, the pilot begins with Mr. Smith and Mrs. Smith, Jane and John, being paired together by the shady spy organization they work for and told, you are pretending to be married now. You are Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You have to live in this brownstone in New York and act like a normal couple and do secret spy things at night. The the It just feels like, oh, we went to a different part in that story from the Americans and said it in the present day. And that is a, a deep compliment from from my perspective, because I love that setup. Too. And while uh, for me, The Americans is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Uh, so I think, you know, big shoes to fill here. And I'm enjoying this. I'm, you know, I've only seen these first two episodes. Uh, I'm not like 
necessarily blown away, but it's fun television. It's definitely a breezier tone than the Americans, though it still has some edge to it. Yeah, it it is a little funnier, a little more rom-com inspired. One of my early notes in the pilot was, you know, what if the Americans was a rom-com? And it's not, it it is more like it, again, has DNA from a rom-com in it, but it's not a rom-com. It has a lot of DNA from the Americans in it, but it's not the Americans. It, It has DNA from many different sources that all work together pretty well to make something that feels familiar in a lot of ways, but also... Uh, feels unique. I, I, I would not say I've seen this show before. I've seen many shows that have a lot of in common with this show before, uh, but I'm enjoying the interesting kind of stew, to quote the late Carl Weathers, you got a stew. And I, I think this one's working well. Again, is it the most exciting? No, but we're only two episodes in, and I am, uh, to compare it to last week's review, True Detective Night Country, I'm feeling a lot more momentum to go back and watch the next episodes. And this was a binge drop, so I also have the option to go watch more. And the action scenes in particular are a lot of fun and well-executed action sequences. And that is something that I, I, I would point to many shows that I have deep affection for that all have one thing in common, which is they nail the action sequences. And that's The Americans. That's Alias. That is... I think Mr. and Mrs. Smith, a show where each episode is sort of a case of the week and there is an action set piece for each case. Yeah, I I agree with you on that, that there's it's fun to watch these sequences. There seems to be a lot of care with the production design, with the setting, with the costumes. It's just it looks to be a well-crafted show. and so far, I would say in the writing as well, um, we don't know too much of, of where it's going yet because it sort of has a case of the week kind of feeling, um, except instead of a case, each week they get an assignment from who they're referring to as Mr. High High, um, this electronic uh, perhaps AI, perhaps person, giving them their instructions from the uh, shady spy agency on what their assignment is each week. Yeah, and and it also reminds me in this way of Poker Face from Peacock last Very year. Very much. Because, again, each episode is one assignment, one case, one guest star, John Turturro in episode two. Uh, and there's an overarching threat, an overarching plot. And we learn at the end of episode two that if they fail three of their assignments, something bad happens. The implication is they get killed. And they do technically fail their first assignment in episode two. I'm Sorry, their second assignment in episode two uh, because they were, uh, were supposed to have no casualties, but they accidentally kill their target when they both give him truth serum at the same time. And that was a moment for me where I was like, oh, yeah, this show has just enough self-aware sense of humor. The the moment where they both stab him with the truth serum is very, very funny, but not laugh out loud funny. It is situational comedy funny. And then it kills him, which is not laugh out loud funny, but again, is situationally a very grim sense of humor kind of funny that that I, I that is where I'm like, oh, I want more of that. That is 
that is a different flavor from the Americans. That's a different flavor from some of those other spy of the week shows like Alias to have just that slight edge, that slight sense of, yeah, it is inspired by a rom-com, which is ultimately situational comedy. And we are going to do some very uncomfortable, dark situational comedy with these kind of novice spies. Because again, it is their first assignments and they both are clearly... um rejected from other more prestigious spy agencies that much we know and so it does give us a sense of yes the the newbie spies on their kind of like marital adventure together all of that combines in an interesting way very interesting and while that moment i also thought was sort of darkly funny when they both inject the truth serum simultaneously, it also, for me, really is so on theme because the show is about them learning to trust and or not to trust each other and how they have to rely on each other for their safety to get these missions accomplished. But uh, they don't have that yet. And Parts of their flawed personalities make that impossible for them to do. Again, um, bringing, uh, echoing the Americans in a big way here. Uh, but so it's one of those moments that I thought was just really well-crafted writing to say, yes, it is darkly funny, but also we're reinforcing our big story arc here with this moment. Yeah, and then the, the fallout of it was traumatic for both of the characters. It wasn't just, mm-hmm. oh, well, now we dispose of the body like we always do. There's a literal moment where Jane asks, like, who gets rid of the body? And again, in it's darkly funny, but it's also at this point getting kind of just darkly dark. John is like, we do. It, there is no, like, it, it isn't the CBS version of this show. It is the more realistic version of this show. Realistic in big air quotes, Mm -hmm. but we've seen the network TV version of Spies, and yeah, uh, we got the guy who gets the body. Uh, Don't worry about that. Uh, We get another chance. Everything resets for the next episode anyway. Uh, Your Mission Impossibles, your aliases, your NCISs of the world. Uh, This is not like that. This is uh, absolutely two people who are navigating trust issues with each other. Like, it adds to the realism of the stakes and of the themes by thrusting them in these positions where there isn't a a magic, you know, uh, CIA that swoops in and cleans it all up behind them. It is just them against the world. And we get the hint from the very beginning of the pilot that if you betray or run afoul of this shady organization, they will destroy you, which we, again, see in a cold open in the the pilot, two spies who are otherwise unnamed, one of them, a Skarsgård, just (laughs) dropping in from my memories of succession and appearing as a spy now, and they just get killed. They just get murdered instantly, gruesomely. Uh, And the implication is they either went rogue or ran away, or by the time we get to the end of episode two and we find out three strikes and you're out, essentially, you wonder, did they screw up three times and go on the run? I had almost forgotten about them. 
Right, it's such There's a disorienting so many... moment, such a crazy way to launch into a series. You know it's going to be about Mr. and Mrs. Smith, these two faces you've seen on the poster art you clicked through to get here. And it opens with these two completely different spies, one of them a recognizable actor who doesn't even get a name credited to him. He gets killed so fast. He's like unnamed man. Mm. He was probably at one time Mr. Smith, we think, though we may learn right. more. Um, though that traumatic incident that we see uh, Jane and John go through at the end when they have to at the end of the second episode when they have to dispose of the body also brings them closer. We see them have this yes. little trauma bond moment um, where they have sex for the first time, these two characters. So, uh, you know, they're becoming more of a married couple as well. So. It's interesting how we see these two parallel stories going of their relationship and also their professional relationship. Yeah, which was the th that exact tension and that kind of parallel storytelling was what made The Americans one of the best shows of peak TV. I mean, I'm honestly, to give John Langrath and FX much due praise, that is one of the best shows of that peak TV era. And so much of it rests on the exact same dichotomy of we have you know, trust issues, marital trust issues, spy trust issues, all of them overlapping in really interesting ways and performances that really sell it. Uh, we've talked already about Donald Glover. He's fantastic. But Jane Smith is also fantastic and not the original Jane Smith we were going to get because part of the backstory of this show is it was originally going to be part of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's overall deal with Amazon Prime a deal we have mentioned in passing before because it cost millions of dollars and has delivered zero new TV shows from Phoebe Waller-Bridge while she goes and stars in Disney movies and other products. Uh, supposedly, there were just creative differences between her and Donald. They would have co-written a lot of the show together, and they, they didn't envision the same show. And, uh, you know, they, both of them say very little about that, though in the very well-crafted marketing launching the show, um, Donald has compared it to a divorce. But there is a lot of marriage-related talk in a lot of the interviews they've done around the show that is very on brand. They've done a good crafting of the PR image. It's a show about marriages, about literal marriages, creative marriages, professional marriages, and so of course they're framing it in that way around a lot of the creative journey making it. Yeah, and Phoebe also used the language of marriage when she was talking about um, that relationship and what a successful creative partnership looks like, which is interesting. Um, to me, it, oh, that raises a lot of red flags it's like when your job refers to you as a family but oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but all of that brings back to what we got left with is um maya erskine 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 yeah. i think maya uh, erskine uh, maybe as erskine jane, as jane smith i i apologize one way or another either way she's fantastic as jane smith and the the chemistry between her and donald feels really good in those first two episodes it is not Brangelina, nor should it be. It is more grounded. It feels more wary and realistic, which is exactly where it should be for a show, again, interrogating trust issues. Yeah. Um, people may know my Erskine, Erskine or in from Pen15, uh, 
hilarious, hilarious show that she also co-created and starred in. Um, she has she's just eminently watchable. She's yeah, and and through through some of the interviews and press around the the show, she's mentioned that uh, because she has a background, especially with Pen Fifteen and and uh, writing as well, she's contributed some of the like uh, tone of her character. She's contributed some suggestions, some ideas that they've used in her character, and uh, you can feel it. She feels very right for that role. You would never guess that it was a recast of, especially somebody kind of famous like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It, it, it none of that seems relevant when you watch her. Uh, it absolutely feels like yes, this is the right vibe for her character and for the dynamic she has with. Uh, John, Donald Glover, I think, has a lot of um, magnetism on screen. He just is very clearly the male lead of this show in presence, and she meets that. She matches that in a really good way. Also stepping into the Phoebe Waller-Bridge role on the show, um, Francesca Sloan, who was a um, writer on Atlanta with Donald Glover, is now a a co-showrunner, I believe. Um, of the show and also one of the creative forces behind it too. Um, it does feel like what whatever they landed on is uh, really exciting. I think the show has a nice little crackle to it. I, I'm like captivated by it. I, I wanna keep watching. Same, same, me too. It, again, like it has the hook, it has the momentum. And as we've gone through a series of shows, a bunch of mysteries and now this, but they're, they're all these winter releases, one of the key differences between them is momentum. Uh, you know, thinking back to January, death and other details, medium momentum. A lot of things happening, not many I'm super invested in, medium momentum. Monsieur Spade, high momentum to me. That's a show where not many things are happening, but each thing that's happening, I have a pretty high level of investment in, and I want to come back and see what happens next. And then we get to True Detective Night Country, where there are, you know, in isolation, a bunch of interesting things, but none of them carrying me through really low momentum experience. And here's a show in a different genre, and one where I think momentum is king, like action, any action tangential genre, momentum is super important. And this one has it, uh, it has it to spare, actually, uh, enough to justify a like hour long, no commercials runtime on Amazon Prime Video. Agreed. I'm really curious um, if they can keep that up with this sort of case of the week structure. Um, will it feel like each of these is just one offs? Sometimes with poker face i felt like oh this week is just an excuse to show this amazing guest star and i've read that the season is is full of amazing guest stars full of amazing (laughs) guest stars we haven't even talked about paul dano yet oh my gosh and um (laughs) so in that sense i worry if that they could lose some of that momentum if it feels like um unrelated events but i think this structure of they only have three losses um and the evolution of their relationship could help carry that through these so it doesn't just feel like a little anthology series yeah and and again i would say we have an example of a show that navigated that same challenge very successfully in The Americans, where Mm. it often was case of the week or case of the two weeks, 
and each season had a kind of overarching narrative, an overarching bad guy or looming threat or target, and they found a way to balance those so that it didn't feel purely serialized. You did have a sense of beginning, middle, and end for for each episode, more or less, Uh, and you had a sense of an overall season arc, and then they were able to jump ahead or find a new villain or a new challenge in their lives. Uh, And this show... The three, you know, failures, the three strikes and you're out sounds like a really big deal and a deadline that if they hit that, isn't the show over? But I also have a lot of faith that, no, that actually kind of gives some shape to what might just be the first season. And then that allows them to take a, a, you know, evolutionary step in the next season. And that's something that uh, Poker Face will need to do to keep Poker Face fresh as it moves into its second or third or fourth seasons. Uh, and so, yeah, that challenge is real, but it can be done. And if they if they pull it off, all the better. Because if this show could even capture some of that agility from the Americans, we could get five seasons of this easy. And I've been craving something in that vein for years now. Because to beat a dead horse, I love the Americans. John Landgraf, oh. I know you're listening. Thank you for the Americans. Thanks, John. I I do think a key difference between this and the Americans and a challenge that Mr. and Mrs. Smith will have to overcome is that the, the Americans had such import in its subject matter. It was intriguing world events. It was lived history. It was... Um, so many fascinating characters and things that they could draw on from the real world. And it seems like from these two episodes, which is a small sample size of Mr. and Mrs. Smith that I've seen, that what we're dealing with is um, frivolity, the lives of the idle rich in both episodes. Um, The case seems to involve stealing from the rich. That could be something of import it could be um some greater thing being said about wealth um i'm not sure yet and maybe it's not going to try to say anything about anything like maybe that's the move to just be a fun sexy spy show but i'm I'm wondering if it will try to do that thinking of donald glover's other work i imagine it might yeah, I, that, that gives me some hope and some promise as well, because, uh, d- yeah, to take the uh, the other side of my comparison coin would be Alias, a show mm-hmm. that was, you know, a buzzy kind of uh, champagne of, of network television kind of show. Uh, or Actually, let me reframe that. The sparkling California wine of network television show. It's a cheap knockoff, but it's a well done, very drinkable cheap knockoff with great action sequences and an awesome cast and some like crazy twists and turns. And after about two seasons, it completely fell apart and it had no depth. Everything was very just surface level spy uh, pulp. And and you know what? When it worked, it was enjoyable. But it, mm-hmm. it, the, the, the lack of depth and the inability to find deeper meaning in it caused them to just try to, you know, add more pulp, more froth, more, you know, soap. And that eventually sunk the show in, you know, two, three seasons total, basically. So there is an alternate direction things could go where it's still a lot of fun at, at first, but it doesn't hold up. 
And uh, again, a key factor that makes me optimistic is Donald Glover and, you know, uh, not just, again, uh, the co-showrunner is also from Atlanta, other writers. He he works with a team of people who he feels creatively uh, in sync with. And that gives me a lot of hope that this could be a really interesting series. Agreed. Yeah. Thinking of how Atlanta evolved over its seasons um, into such an interesting show, I wonder um, if this will break form at all, if we'll see anything like that. Um, I'm really excited. Uh, And but we have to talk about Paul Dano. Yeah. uh, Oh, Paul Dano, the like unnamed weird neighbor character who I'm sorry, his dog is eating the cat poop. That's the that's the crisis. That's the crisis, but he also seems like really fascinated in their building. He's got he's asking a lot of questions. He might be too noisy. Is he just the neighbor? Is more going on? I'm intrigued by him. He's basically only had one scene so far. I feel like he's coming back for more and he might be someone who runs through the episodes. And um, I'm excited about that. I think he's really good in this. Yeah, no, he, he was a uh, both completely unremarkable character, but but an incredibly intriguing cameo that left you thinking, surely we have not seen the last of this person? No. And honestly, no. it just for Devil's Advocate, would be a really interesting choice if we have seen the last of him, because what was effective about that scene is I uh, he's talking to Jane on her stoop, basically, just kind of like neighbor person interrogating new neighbor. And you feel uncomfortable in that scene the way Jane feels uncomfortable in that scene it feels like why are you asking me all these questions what is your ulterior motive and that honestly could just be the paranoia of having an ulterior motive and having just moved to the neighborhood there is a sense of like yeah I don't know what to make of that but I'm excited by it and I do hope he comes back Either way, it achieved the goal of making me think, ooh, I would also be, like, really unnerved by this encounter if I was the novice spy who just moved into this house and was trying to, like, you know, keep their cover. Agreed. And it also seemed like they had some sort of potential budding flirtation. A little bit. And that gave it more of a suspense as well, which puts the second story here, the romance plot also at risk so um clever writing very clever it's almost like these people know what they're doing and it is perhaps a team i should have some faith in i hope so well you know we can't talk about donald glover without checking in on the community movie surprise uh there is an update from donald glover on the press tour for this about the community movie and the update is they're still making the community movie that's it okay amazing Give us a date. On on Peacock. Is that a date? On Peacock. The date is on Peacock. So we need Peacock to stick around. That's right. Peacock can't go anywhere anytime soon. And if there's another streamer in the world that you need to stick around for an extremely specific reason, we want to know what it is. Write to us. Podcast at streamageddon.com. But until then, we have to go back undercover and do what we do best. Keep Keep streaming. streaming. We have to talk about Paul Dano.